welcome, welcome to the Bien Show. We are coming to you from New York City. I'm New York. Steve. Paul's here, and our good friend Joshua Jin Ho Kim. Hello, America. This is our first guest uh, appearance from a uh, esteemed colleague of ours, and uh, we're gonna bring a special episode of The Wire. Very happy to be here. Very happy to be here. Josh is wearing shades and a Yankees hat, which... Uh... And he's topless, which is the way we prefer it. <laughs> but, but yeah, you've heard a lot about this episode, if you've been listening. We, I mean, we've hyped it for quite a, quite a long while now, and so here it is. So let's, let's start with whatever we have. The New York edition of the Bien Quo Show, featuring me. Josh has actually not been drinking, surprisingly. He's actually completely sober It's right also now. a... 12 <laughs> noon, so I think that's okay. The reason why Josh is here is because he's the one that introduced both both of us to The Wire, and he's kind of a wire expert of sorts. Uh, it's true, it's true. I've seen it three times, and it just gets better every time. <laughs> it's really hard to take you seriously right now. Um, but yeah, he actually will randomly G-chat you and just kind of chat you up for like a half hour on just Wire and anything that you want to talk about there. So this is the first chance we've had to really go through it in detail. Um, first, I'd just like to say that I think The Wire is the greatest show that I've ever seen. Uh, it's just so realistic. It's just life-changing in the way that you look around and see things around you and really get to see how a city works um, in such a complex way. Yeah, I always think when I, whenever I talk about The Wire, I feel weird because... It's one of those shows that gets so overhyped in journalism in terms of reviews and every person you talk to always talks about how life-changing it is and how great it is. And my initial reaction to any person's recommendation like that is to automatically hate the thing. But then when I actually went and watched The Wire all the way through... It lives up it, to the hype. Completely. Yeah. Not even a, a, like a hair beneath. You know, It's just like straight up that good. And there's no reason to deny it. It's it is the best television show ever made. Yeah. You know, people say that and they are not exaggerating in this case at all. Absolutely. I mean it absolutely changes the way you look at the world and makes you think about things in a completely different way. And it's not a matter of, oh, I'm now I'm smarter and that's why it doesn't teach you in the sense of teaching you how to think. It just exposes you to things that you would never be exposed to living the lives that we live so far removed from, say, politics or journalism or unions or drug dealing or the police force. These are all very abstract concepts to us, and by exposing us to them in a very realistic, direct way, um, that's how it changes the way you view things. And it's not a show that's you know easily graspable. I mean, you have to you have to really stick with it, give it time, and be patient with it. But I think that. You know, for a, for a drama, obviously it's a, it's a very dramatic show, but like documentary almost in that sense. But at the same time, I mean, there are elements of just human nature, you know, like humor, sadness, grief that all kind of come through. And uh, it, you can't sell you sell it short by not paying attention the whole time. If you're watching it while you're doing something else, you're inevitably missing out on details that really kind of paint that picture really vividly. Yeah, you have to devote your full attention when I when you watch the show, and that's part of the reason that it took me two viewings to really get into it. The first time, you know, I watched the first episode and I thought, what's the big deal? You know, nothing's really happening. It's really slow. But, you know, after you get into it, you realize it's purposefully that way. The Wire is probably the most patient television show that I've ever seen. Nothing will happen in a season until maybe episode eight or nine. 
and then a whole bunch of things happen at once, and it blows your mind. And by the end of the season, you you just can't wait for the next one. Exactly, it's extremely well crafted, and that's the bottom line. I mean, it's like reading a book. Yeah, the it's entire like thing a very sophisticated is yeah, one long novel book. Yeah, but we should we should stop talking about how great it is and show <laughs> show them how great it is. So, do each of you have a uh, favorite season that you uh, like the most out of any of them? I'd probably say season three. With Hamsterdam and, and Bunny Colvin. And I would say season three is probably the most entertaining and most accessible because a lot of things happen. It's a moment that redevelops the drug, the drug trade issue in a pretty big way. Um, it also marks a major change in control mm-hmm. on many different institutional levels. Um, so there's a lot of action, relatively speaking, um, to the other seasons. So I think it's probably the most entertaining because it is the season where you really get to see the relationships between things in a very, very clear way. Definitely. Season one and season two, you sort of get, you're sort of thrown off. You say, well, okay, I can kind of see the relationships between these things, but they seem very insulated from each other in some way. Right. Right. But by season three, you are just fully realizing how interconnected all these different things are. And it's really by bringing in the mayor's office yeah, that absolutely. you realize that because that's kind of the crown where, you know, mm-hmm. the tree branches off from there. You know, everything else goes up to the mayor. And I just want to say, Steve always, from my conversation with him, he always uses the wire for his, like, Republican, <laughs> anti-big government, the government is inefficient. Well, it's institutional dysfunction. Always, Nothing ever gets Yeah, done. but always... <laughs> I'm just saying, it's a, not a political issue, but Steve <laughs> always seems to manage to find... That's like I what mean, you said the, the, very first se- <laughs> the very first season when we started when he started watching, his major takeaway from the first like six episodes is just how inefficient everything was. Yeah, I'm just saying, yep. it's not like it gets much better if Carcetti, if Carcetti right. had been a Republican. That's right. all I'm saying, dude. It's, it's the inherent way that government works. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, okay, anyways, I just want to point that out. <laughs> Which is totally fine, Steve. I, I think that's a great thing, but I'm just saying I think it's funny. Yeah. Of all the things you could, you could, you could draw out. from the wire. Absolutely. I really like, I mean, season three is great. I think that's, like you said, the most entertaining season. Um, I really like season four a lot, which is, I mean, honestly, those two are probably as tied together as any two seasons in there. Um, just because you kind of see... I really like it because you get to see the players before they're players, right? You get to see the, the school children, and, you know, their different development paths, and you can see who's on the straight and narrow and who's going to kind of flip and, you know, kind of be bad. You know, now that I think about it, we should probably just give a brief description of each season sure. so that there's a context because a, a lot of the listeners... All three of them? Plural. Yeah. <laughs> plural at this point? I, I think it's plural. I don't know. If um, you haven't watched the show... Then I don't know how you're going to be able to follow this. Basically, just to give you a brief overview, season one focuses on the relationship between the police department and the drug trade, mm-hmm. and just sort of how they interact with each other, how they are similar, how they're different, and how there's good and bad people on both sides, et cetera, et cetera. The second season takes a pretty, pretty big step away from that, and actually goes towards the Longshoremen Union, and sort of... Um, the working class in America confronting technological changes and trying to keep their piece of the pie when more and more their jobs are being shipped overseas or being replaced by mechanized machines and efficient techniques that don't require as many bodies, human bodies, and how 
in a way, it sort of demonstrates how a working class can be forced into forced a life make, of crime yeah. or work towards that direction. You should watch it. It's really good. Make, making choices, basically, to help make ends right. meet, right? It's, right. At the end of the day, you see these are good, honest people who, 10 years ago, would have had good working class jobs, paying their taxes, doing their stuff, and now, because of their economic situation, they're forced to make more questionable decisions, and you can really relate to them in a way you can't really relate to a drug dealer because you didn't really get to see that process occur. Anyways. And, and in a greater context, it introduces kind of the supply mechanism for the actual right. drug trade, which doesn't really become clear right off the bat, but in later seasons, it's very clear how you know those drugs are actually imported into the, into the Baltimore system. And um, you want to do the third season, Steve? Uh, season three introduces the mayor's office into the picture, and it shows Bunny Colvin and his attempt to institute real meaningful change into the system and how that is rebuffed, how that really scares people who are in charge, and how difficult it is to get anything real done. And um, At the same time, also, Carcetti, um, you know, as a white mayor right. in Baltimore, is running for, for office, and you get to see some of the kind of you know, political promises and hope that uh, come with a new regime when an old one has been known to be failed. Uh, and then season four moves on and it introduces the kids and the school system and how it kind of feeds into the drug trade, how, you know, it's parallel to the police department with its quest for statistics. And uh, from there, we move to season five, which focuses on the journalism, the Baltimore Sun, and how they decide to report stories or don't report stories. And really, I think the main thing about season five is the subtext. It's, you know, what doesn't get reported because of really the big wigs and, you know, what they're after, which is Pulitzers. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyways, what you really should do is watch all of it, but if you can't, Within the time, you know, you want to listen to this podcast, I guess I understand, because it is five <laughs> seasons. It might take a while. You can burn through it in a couple weeks and then come back and listen to this again. What you should probably do is take a week off and do eight-hour days yeah. and listen to this podcast. <laughs> you'll be better for it. You'll learn much more, and you'll actually end up contributing more to society, you know, over the course of the rest of your life than, you know, than you would have contributed at work that week, so... So uh, what's most interesting to me about The Wire, what really gets me the most is really the drug trade and really kind of like the street games and really all the aspects of kind of urban ghetto America. Um, and so for me, one of the things I enjoyed the most was kind of the, the fight between the Barksdale organization and the Stanfield organization. Um, for context, the Barksdale organization are the at the beginning of the show, are sort of the kings of Baltimore. They own a major part of West Baltimore drug trade, almost unchallenged. Um, and Marlo Stanfield is a young, up-and-coming drug dealer. Extremely violent, extremely efficient, and uh, it's a very interesting battle. Yeah. Um, it, to me, it kind of showed how the individual people themselves don't really matter. Because on a, a macroeconomic scale, you know, if you look, if you take a step back and look at the thing as a whole, nothing ever changes. Mm -hmm. You know, the people can be swapped in and out, but their roles are essentially the same. And Marlowe and his crew 
step right in when uh, Avon and his crew get arrested. So, and one, another thing, another thing I would say is that if you're worried about spoiler alerts in this show, this show is not a plot-driven show. And so when you find out these things, for the most part, I don't think they'll impact your viewing at all. Like I said, I've seen it three times all the way through. I knew exactly what was going on, and I had there was no. I honestly can say I enjoyed it probably more knowing what was going on because I just didn't have to worry about it then. And I could just really focus on the characters. Anyways. I mean, you could be really into it for the plot. I mean, there's obviously plot development that you know can take you by surprise and can really shock you and really be interesting in that sense. But, I mean, like Josh said, it's not a show where that is the main driver. There's so much more to it and so much more you can get out of it that isn't just driven by what happened in episode 8 of season 2 or something like that. Right, there are a lot of subtleties that make you appreciate it. You know, the acting, the writing in this show is so phenomenal. It's undescribably good. Yeah. Uh, but, no, back to back to uh, what uh, Paul was talking about. No, I definitely think that, uh, and I've told Paul this before, I'm not sure if I've told it to you, but I think the most interesting thing about uh, the Barksdale and uh, Stanfield families is when you really look at it, for some reason, the way the story's told, you really identify with the Barksdales, mm-hmm. and you're sort of rooting for them. Mm-hmm. And they're really, really bad people. I mean, these are they murder, they torture, mm-hmm. they sell drugs, you know, they, they use violence, extreme violence, to control what they want to control. They kill hookers. You know, they let hookers die and just throw them in a dump, dumpster. You know right. what I mean? These are very, very bad people. But the, the way the story's told, especially um, in, in opposition to the police department, mm-hmm. you really almost root for them because you're like, oh, the police department is a bunch of like power-hungry idiots who are just like doing stupid stuff and just trying to cover their own asses. And these are people trying to put food on the table. And these are poor people who used what they did what they could to move to the top. And look, it's great, you know. And you identify with them. Stringer yeah. Bell is probably one of the most relatable characters Absolutely. in the Wire. Trying and he to go is, legit. And he is the enforcer. He is the guy who decides who lives and who dies. Right. And he makes that decision. And sometimes he even does it himself. And then on the other side you have the Stanfields coming up and they're just these vicious, vicious, violent people and you don't get to sort of see all that backroom stuff with them. You don't get to see the conversations they have behind closed doors and so you look at these people and you're like, these are terrible, terrible people. But at the end of the day, they're doing the same thing. The Barksdales are doing the same sorts of things the Stanfields are doing. And based on the way the story's told, we actually identify really strongly with the Barksdales and then we turn around to the Stanfield and it's like, oh, these are bad people. But it really shows you, if you're close to something, you can, you forgive it. If you understand something, you forgive it and you are much more understanding of it. Whereas something that you just see, oh, that person killed somebody, that's it. That's a bad person. Right. There's so much humanization too with the Barksdales that you just don't get with the Stanfields. What comes to mind is the basketball game mm-hmm. with Prop Joe and the referee feeling that he's going to get killed because he made a bad call against Avon's team. Right. And then it's a West Baltimore versus, versus East, East Baltimore, Baltimore basketball game. And then Avon steps in and says, "What are you stupid? We're not going to kill anybody over a damn basketball game." Right. And the referee turns around and puts his tail between his legs. And you know, those are the human moments that we don't get to see with the Stanfield organization. You know, we uh-huh. see all of the Barksdale's family and you know how well, how they are actually I mean, a family the, like the Bar- by blood. And really you don't see that at all with Marlowe's crew. I mean you, we see 
Chris Partlow's family for maybe like five seconds. I would say Chris Partlow is the one is Part- the one exception because at that moment when he when he kills uh, Michael, is it Michael? Michael's dad. Michael's stepfather. Step yeah. yeah. You really see sort of that's, right, that's where the this rare, where this sociopathic emotion. behavior emerges mm-hmm. from. You know, but it, even even that shows kind of underlying like the fact that he took that out with such aggression in such a way. That's like the first example you see of any background for Chris Partlow, because like right. you know that he must have been probably molested, molested or abused in some sexual way by, by, a by, older by an older man at mm-hmm. some point, and like that's the only sense where you, it's it's not only about that's that was a killing with emotion, right? Yeah, Every other killing is like walking up to a dealer and, that, and just and that's what him. and that's what gets him caught in the yeah. end. Right. He gets his mm-hmm. DNA because he's punching this guy in the face and just basically smushing his face in with his fist. (laughs) What I I was going to say is that, you know, in some twisted way, the Barksdales kind of, you know, they, they, Avon every time just says, you know, we're family, it's family. Like, you know, me and Dee, we're tykes, it's family. And, you know, it's kind of an excuse in some terms because obviously family doesn't always run deep enough. Right. And some things because need of to what be they done. Did to D. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you actually got to see much more of an excuse and example there. You know that Stringer grew up with, with, uh, with Avon. You know that WeeBay's been there the whole time, that all these people know each other for so long that, you know, they're all in it. You know, they're not in it for the right reasons, but they're all doing it because, and they're successful at it. They all grew up together. And I think that's what I liked about season four so much, jumping around again. But. What season four really showed is that like these are when the kids grew up together. This is when those relationships were initially forged, and you don't get that with the Sandfields. You just see crazy ass Snoop right. and crazy ass Partlow. I, I think a really interesting um, sort of relationship to to view is actually um, Stringer Bell as somebody who's trying to become educated. Mm-hmm. So Stringer Bell in season one through three, um, Stringer Bell is <clears throat> um, probably one of my favorite characters personally, um, and. What he really is about is he is all about making money. That's all he's about. He right. there's he has no street in him. He doesn't want to own corners. He doesn't want to be the toughest guy on the block. He doesn't want to drive a fancy car. He wants to make a lot of money. And in any way he can, whether it's through dealing drugs or through real estate or mm-hmm. any other means he can find. And what's interesting is uh, there's a great scene where uh, McNulty, the main detective, follows him. And he finds out that he goes to community college, and he's taking classes in economics, and he's actually asking the professor questions that are going to help him <laughs> brand his drugs better. Right. And it's like really interesting because what you see in that scene is somebody who's really earnestly and eagerly trying to learn something mm-hmm. and trying to better himself in a weird way. In order for different reasons, for different but yeah. reasons, but still, he's trying to become better at his job. Yeah. Right. And uh, when you go look at these kids in season four, especially, um, it's sort of the same thing. You know, these kids are in this situation where the opportunities presented to them are just so terrible that, you know, you're sitting in a classroom. Uh, one thing that always that bothered me is like in the season four, Dookie is really good with computers, and there's like this right. hope throughout the whole thing. Like, like maybe Dookie can pull through. He's he could teach, be the one. He's teaching the the. The teacher, you know, yeah, yeah, Presbo, like how to use the computer and all this stuff, and you know, at the end, I mean, at the end of the day, he just falls off because he just doesn't have the support system. He doesn't have have any options, and even though there is this supposed pathway to education and a way to better himself, there's just no opportunity. But what's but then on the other hand, the opportunity is to become a drug dealer, and that's what Stringer did, and so Stringer's using educational mechanisms. To make him a better person within that realm. realm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I Whereas wouldn't say he, he has. Be... I wouldn't say he has no street in him though, because when he get, when he finds out that he gets shafted by Clay Davis, his immediate reaction is to go to Wee Bay or Slim Charles. I forget who it was, but he Charles, won- yeah. uh, Slim Charles, and he says, you know, we I want this guy killed. I I want yeah. this guy taken care of. Yeah, and you can't do that because Clay Davis is a prominent human being. So. Yeah, he, he's got some street in him. I think it's it's just expressed in a very different, a different way. Yeah, he's, he's he's trying to go legit. He, I mean, he's, he's trying, trying to get to that legit. out of his system. Exactly, but yeah. he, he can't really do it. And that's, I mean, that's what Clay kind of roped him in with in the Jeez. first place, right? String. <laughs> you got to spend money to make, make money. money. String. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think String really is one of the most powerful characters because everyone is kind of you know there, there's more depth to some of the characters than you'd expect but string's the one who really like throws you a curveball i mean even when even after string's dead and mcnulty's kind of lamenting the fact that he never got a chance to bring him in um or really like nail him you know he goes to his apartment you remember that and he sees like adam smith's like wealth of nations right, and right. stuff like that on his bookshelf he's like i mean he already done more research following him around but He's like, I barely even know this guy. This guy is completely different than any drug dealer I've ever seen before. I'm used to Absolutely. seeing guys like Avon or Prop Joe or, um, you know, the big hot shots who are just used to pushing product and strings trying to, like, revolutionize. I mean, it's the whole idea of that, uh, of the, um, like, community group they had where they were, mm-hmm. you know, basically unifying and trying to take out all of the all of the street out of the game and just making it purely about profit. Right, right. And, um, you know, Avon wasn't down with that. And that's... It's kind of funny to see those two because you can see how, like, you know, anyone who's had a really good friend for a long time, you can kind of see how, like, your fundamental interests can diverge a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what was funny about B&B. Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the, the greatest things about the show is that it's actually a very amoral show. And what I mean by that is just that it really forces you to not judge everybody in the traditional ways you would judge people. So that line that is the law, you really just learn to not really respect that line because you look on both sides of it and it's just people doing what they need to do and a lot of times the people on the right side of the law are a lot uglier than the people on the wrong side of the law because mm-hmm. the people on the wrong side of the law have an excuse you know it's like hey i grew up in the projects i got molested by my <laughs> uncle you know like or like yeah. i'm a t- screwed up screwed up person and i made the best in my situation and I had no means, and look, now I drive a nice car. You know, all this stuff. And you can see that. I can identify with that. Whereas when you look at a guy like <clears throat> like Rawls, who's like this white, kind of well-to-do, just idiot, try- moving up the ladder in a disgusting, disgusting way. I mean, a good example. That he's I think so smart, though. You, know, he's you can very, tell he's smarter than everyone else in the room. He's absolutely smart, but that being said... He has options. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he had right. other ways to live comfortably without being a slimy, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't gnarly guy. Excuse and, his behavior at all. Right, right. And that, I think it's interesting because, especially, I would say, again, I don't know, I'm, I'm not in McNulty's mind, but I would say McNulty, as sort of one of the main characters, he probably would like Stringer Bell more than he likes Rawls. Absolutely. Or like Stringer... He respects Bell. Absolutely. He, he respects String for what String does because exactly. he knows that String pushes it in the right way. Right, I mean, right. McNulty's kind of one of those guys who's like a very, <laughs> like, I don't know, a very jaded sense of self. You know, he's, mm-hmm. I mean, he's obviously, you know, very self-centered and thinks the world himself. But honestly, there's a, there's a lot of reason why he... It's twisted, but in a way, he does respect himself in, in yeah. a in a way he usually should. Right, McNulty, I think, is driven by vanity over anything else. You know, mm-hmm. it's either you're driven by vanity or you're driven by 
your personal ambition, you know. So you have those two types of people in the department, you know, people looking to move up and people looking to do real police work. Mm-hmm. And I think the best thing, it's almost like, you know, Omar says, like, you know, man's got to have a code. I think McNulty yeah. has a code. He's like the only, Absolutely. one of the only officers that has a code, and his code is that he's going to do whatever it takes to deem, to solve what he thinks is the most important problem. Right. Right. And even if that means cutting corners somewhere else or making up a silly, like, murderer, raper in, like, uh, season five, like, those are all means to an end. And to him, like, the fact that he's willing to take those steps to get to that place, um, that means, that's, that's his code. Whereas, like, most of the detectives don't really have a specific code. Yeah, what's, what, you know, now that we're talking about it, I think it's interesting because I think McNulty is sort of positioned as the main character of the show, but I actually probably think about him the least. Yeah. Which is why I think the show is so interesting. The way it tells stories is the main character, honestly, doesn't have that much of an impact. <laughs> he's the closest they, they, thing we have to a hero, but he's also a Well, they literally cut him being. out for like an entire season. Like, right, there's no yeah. other show that can mm-hmm. cut out their main character for yeah. a whole season and still be like, I mean, that was like, that was like one of the best seasons, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and it was, was good to see him, you know, sober for a while. <laughs> yeah. I actually, uh, back to Rawls really fast. I always thought that that whole thing that he was gay was going to pop up at some point, but it never yeah, did. Yeah, it never did. I was like mm-hmm. shocked that it never came back. That's why that show, way. that's why The Wire is insane, because they like, don't just do that. Like, yeah, that little detail, yeah. like, oh my God, show like, I picked up on that. exploit that right. so mm-hmm. heavily, just like, and The Wire will give you two seconds. Yeah. It'll give you two seconds of just some revolutionary <laughs> reimagining that, of a character that to me com- and, and then just and then just walks away from it right that to me like completely changed it's like everything that Rawls had ever said before yeah. suddenly was in like a brand new light yeah. like, oh my god this guy's like, he's actually gay yeah. he's actually he's saying all this like crazy shit and then I'm like oh like let's everything from now on is gonna be like different in my mind and yet they never went back and exploited yeah. it's it it's the same Bill Rawls that you see in the very next episode yeah and it's just the discipline of the show the patience like getting like getting back to um, when Chris uh, punched Michael's stepdad to death, you know that happened in season four. Yeah, and it didn't come back to bite him in the ass until the end the of end season, season five. Four, yeah. You know, just yeah. the patience that this show has. I, mean, I think that's one of the greatest things about the show is that it it refuses to make a big deal out of anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's like why it's so powerful because it, so many other shows they try to exploit excitement and sort of interesting stuff and. What The Wire really does is it sets up these stories. It's a, it's the most anticlimactic show. Yeah. It's everybody works really hard to get something done and then it doesn't get done. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much how the show works. I mean, and it's not any individual's fault. It's the it's the way the city and society in general operates. Right. And I think like one of the one of my favorite scenes, I remember actually I remember the very specifically the first time <laughs> Paul was watching The Wire, he was about to stop yeah, <laughs> and he was saying, "I'm gonna go to sleep or something." And then I said, "What episode are you on?" And I told him specifically that the next episode has my favorite scene in it. And what it is is they're trying to move this desk through a doorway. Oh yeah, and two people are trying to do it, and then they try to help each other, and they just cannot move this desk through the doorway. And it's like a minute long of them. Yeah, literally to do like it. a minute. It's one of the and best like cold openings. The there's ever like had. five or six people doing it, and then. Somehow somebody says like, "Yeah, well, I was trying to push," and then and then the other guy goes, "Push." <laughs> I thought you said pull, and it's just the most classic. And everyone just like walks away. It's, yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's five good people trying to do something good or accomplish something, accomplish something, <laughs> and just literally just pushing against each other, making sure, ensuring that neither side can accomplish the task in their mind. You know, I mean, I think that 
really does sum up the wire. That's what you see. You see all these people trying to do good, but also at the end of the day trying to cover their asses. And I think that's the biggest opposition is that. It's actually a very personal show in that sense. It's about how you have these institutions and these organizations that you have to make sure um, continue for your own self-interest. And so even though you know in the big picture outside of this circle you've drawn, whether it's the police department or whether it's the drug dealers or whether it's um, the, the mayor's office or the newsroom, um, if you go outside of it and do the right thing, you're biting the hand that feeds you. Mm -hmm. You know That exactly. is the place you're getting your, your support from. And that's basically what happens. Every time somebody steps out of that line, they get screwed. McNulty gets screwed. All, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the people that work with the drug dealers that work with the cops literally just get killed. Yep. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? I mean, that's the way it works. And uh, I think that's why it's always about self-interest versus... Self-preservation. Yeah, yeah self-preservation and your commitment to this organization that maybe is actually hurting the rest of the world. And that comes out very, very clearly from anybody can point to a drug drug dealer and say that. But what The Wire really shows you, it's the same thing for politics, it's the same thing for the police department, same thing for the teachers union, and it's the same thing for the media. Like, all these organizations, which we consider legitimate, good institutions of society, actually perpetuate the same, the same, same problems yeah. through the same, and by the same mechanism that a drug, a drug dealer, right. you know, would, would do. And I think, you know, that's, again, that's why I say it's like a very amoral show right. in the sense that it really forces you to reserve your judgment of along traditional lines and really, sh it really does. A, I mean, one of the great things they do is they cut between scenes where the drug dealers will be doing something and then it'll cut to a scene where the police department will be doing something exactly the right. same as the right. drug, having the exact same problem. They do that with the teachers union and the police department. And it's just like such an effective way. Well, you, you end up disliking almost every institution to some extent, right? right? Exactly. Because it's like, it's really frustrating. You're, you're upset at the schools because they're chasing stats and they're not placing their emphasis on actually educating the kids. Right. But you understand why that is. You're mad at the, the police department for juicing their stats and not really trying to solve problems. And you're mad at the mayor's office for playing political games that are more um, conducive to furthering their own careers. careers. Yeah. You know, like Carcetti even, you know, Carcetti preaches and preaches, you know, he's like, I'm the, I'm the great white hope. And he's not, it's not really about race as much as it's about his ability to like... It's not, yeah, it's about he's him. Trying to, he's trying to take what he perceives in a very idealistic sense is wrong and fix it when he's mayor. And but, when he gets to be mayor... He finds himself in the exact same situation that someone like Royce was in. Where he's, right. If he wants to further his career and further himself, he's going to have to make choices and make changes that you know, are, go exactly against what he promised guys like Daniels at the very start. Carcetti and McNulty's motivations are kind of the same. Because, you know, Car the Carcetti ran for mayor because he was bored, basically. Because he was... <laughs> he wanted to make something better of himself. You know, he's the most narcissistic character on the show. Yeah, they're very ego -centric. You can see that, especially when he's uh, having sex with that lady on the counter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's just looking at himself the entire time. Yeah. And when he comes back from giving that speech, you know, his wife wants to talk to him about what happened. But he's more interested in just watching, watching himself, himself on TV. Yeah. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and in the same sense, McNulty is kind of like that, where he wants to do police work, not to actually, you know, for the betterment of the city, but to show and prove to everyone else that he's the smartest guy in the room. Yep. Yeah. 
But it's not real police work. Not real police work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I love on that set, on that token. I love Lester. I love Bunk. I think Bunk is the funniest character in the whole oh, show. He, he just is. does so many things, oh, yeah. like unintentionally and intentionally, <laughs> that are just absolutely hilarious. I mean, oh, he's I put, a classic. He, he's absolute just classic. so funny. I mean, just for everything from his fat fingers to his his sweet talking and his uh, when he's like on the toilet and my favorite <laughs> one of my favorite scenes is when he's like they're chasing down. I think they're chasing down uh, one of the Greeks, and like they have the like security camera footage, and and they're basically showing the guy like getting chased down by the Greeks, and they're like you know going to kill him or whatever, and Bunk's just in the back giving commentary, just like oh god, oh god, I think I just busted a nut. Oh, yeah, god. <laughs> it's just like Bunk's just the man. Um, and one is the... not solely comic relief, as you can oh, see. No, right, no. he's a good he's a good yeah. detective. Especially the, like, what comes to mind is that uh, that talk he had with Omar. About how you know all the kids are idolizing this guy mm-hmm. as some kind of legend figure, and it's ironic because one of those kids comes back. And I don't I don't know if you noticed, yeah, but yeah. one of the kids who's playing when you know they're saying, "Oh, I'm Omar. I get to be Omar." Yeah. One of the kids Pops who's yeah, forward. that's Canard. He, yeah, he Canard, ends up yeah. actually killing Omar. So, which I didn't realize until later. Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> you have to you have to go back and watch it again, and it's like, whoa, I did not <laughs> see that the first time. I mean, I honestly, I, I honestly think that in the show, um, Bunk is probably one of the most solid characters. He is. Yeah. He, I mean, he's a family man. He's like very responsible, very respectful. Really, fu- I mean, he's a funny guy. But at the end of the day, he he colors within the lines, and he I does. think he's really, really one of the few characters. I think actually, Chris Paltrow and Parlo uh, yeah. and uh, and like Weebay are very similar characters in the sense that they play within the game and they accept the rules and right. they don't try to change the system and they're very good at what they do and they succeed. And that's sort of like one of the few hopeful uh, hopeful characters you actually have. Yeah, I, Bay and Partlow particularly come to mind because they're more than willing to do time. I mean, you remember when Bay's taking charges for crimes right. that he commit, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's... He knows that that's just part of the game. Those yeah. are like he's going to get life rules, anyway, right? so he doesn't care. Exactly, and I think that that's one of the things that's really. I mean, you could you almost admire them in a sense because they understand that they've been really good at what they've done for a really long time. But they always knew that they were going to go down at some point. They knew that they'd have to take the fall at some point. Right. And um, and when it's time to take that fall, they're not going to fight or complain about it. I mean, they know that they're the ones that are supposed to take the, the fall for their bosses. And I think at the end of the day, what's What's actually really powerful about Chris and, and Weebay is that they actually take the fall and they, they're happy to do it mm-hmm. because they know that their people are going to be taken care of. And, like, it really shows you, you know, Chris, when he's saying goodbye to his family, I mean, he yeah. really... These people... I mean, that's the thing. These these drug dealers and these killers, I mean, at the end of the day, they are just trying to do their the best they can, put food on the table for their families. And the way they do it is reprehensible by any account. At the same time, when you again, that's why the show is so effective because you look at these kids in junior high right. and you see their lives and what's in front of them and every obstacle that is placed in front of them towards a legitimate, well-paying career. Mm-hmm. You know, look, and don't get me wrong, I'm I truly believe that in America, if you work your ass off and do everything you can, you sure, know, yeah, you yeah. can succeed legitimately. That being said, for people like you know Paul, Steve, and I. The system is set up like we could just mm-hmm. that we're going downstream. We could not even paddle, and we'd probably do okay. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they you know, these kids so literally yeah. have a 
every obstacle possible placed in front of them, and you can really identify with that. Like, mm-hmm. I'd say, honestly, I don't know. If I was in that position, I would probably become a drug addict or a drug dealer. Right. Because it's terrible, and I hope I never have to <laughs> experience that. <laughs> I probably won't, I, you know? I think that the great example of that is the, the is looking at Michael and Naaman, because Naaman obviously comes from the family. Of, he's Weebae's kid. He's, like, destined to be a drug dealer, destined to be part of the game. He's not good at it. He's obviously terrible at it, Not actually. made for the corner. Um, but he's lucky enough that he stumbles into Bunny, Bunny Colvin, who takes him under, like, you know, lets him move in and everything. And, you know, you only see him once in season five, but, but at that point he's giving speeches and, you know, he's showing so team. much more promise yeah. and talent than he ever had before. It's really the only happy ending. Yeah, it's on one of the, the only happy endings, yeah. And then, conversely, you have Michael. And Michael... You instantly might like Michael in season four because he's he's like the stand-up guy. He's the one who looks out. Yeah, he's like a tough guy, but he's got a good heart. He looks out for his brother. He's he's the one supporting like a drug addict mom. You know, he's doing all the things that you don't you don't want your eleven or twelve year old kid to be doing, right? And at first, it's like really really hard to see Michael start hanging out with Chris, right? See him like kind of going down the road of being a killer. And you know, Mike's really good at it. But at the same time, it's like you got to respect him because that's the, literally the only way that he's going to be able to support his family right now, right? No, absolutely. I and, mean, that's and that's the thing. At the end of the day, you that's why this show is so powerful because it doesn't preach that until the end, you know, till season four. I think that's one of the coolest things about the show is that it could have so many moments where it could just give you these like, oh, but now look at the way society is, blah, blah, blah. But they hold off on that, and they do it in an extremely subtle way, and they do it season four, where you see these kids growing up, and especially, especially Michael, you know, you really say, look, this guy's in a really, really, like, effed up situation, right? and he had to make some really, really, really hard choices, you know, and at the end of the day, I can completely understand why he made those choices, and I can also completely see how after you make those choices at that age, you're going to continue to make choices like that over the course of your time. I mean, that's what I think is so interesting is that these moral dilemmas that you have to go through as a child. Mm-hmm. And you can see with Mike, especially he, I mean, he's not fully converted, right? right? I mean, he's the one that still questions Snoop, still questions Partlow, questions Stanfield. Like, you know, why are we doing things this way? Does this person really need to die? Because he's not, he hasn't been completely turned yet. And obviously that's why, and he's good enough that's, you know, he obviously killed Snoop, which was just a great scene, by the way. Great scene. But, uh... You look good, girl. You look good, girl. You look good. It's the first feminine moment you see of Snoop. Yeah, Snoop, Snoop, by the way, Snoop is just fucking crazy. Like, she's just one of the best characters out there. Yeah, I mean, great background on her is that she actually went to jail (laughs) when she was 14 years old for killing somebody. Snoop Pearson, she played herself, basically. She was a gangbanger. She was a drug dealer. She was, I think she was 14 years old and she shot somebody in a fight. Yeah. And uh, went to uh, uh, prison until she was 18. But, Um, but, yeah, I was going to say that one of the happiest things for me at the end of the show is the fact that Michael you know, ends up playing the role of Omar, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, Michael's always going to be involved in some sense, but he's using his... I mean, it's it's that whole twisted thing where, like, everyone loves Omar because he's, like, you know, he's... He's the only one he's not like, beholden to an institution. He's like the Robin Hood of he's the ghetto, himself. basically, right? He's only beholden to himself. And it's, it's, it's fun to see Michael in that role because he's talented enough to do it, but also he's, like good enough that you can still kind of root for him without feeling really bad about I did it. feel they kind of stretched Michael in the end and made him like more Omar-ish like for yeah, effect because you did. know he, he wasn't that 
witty and... Oh, yeah. I mean, he's not a witty that. guy. Omar's... And you see that in the, the last episode where he holds up that rim shop. Right, right. And you're like, wow, that's very Omar-esque of him. <laughs> and, you you know, there was no hint of that ever before. It's kind of funny we haven't talked about Omar at all yet. Yeah, Omar, I mean, everyone loves Omar, right? He's There's not much to say. He's yeah. got to be you know, most people's favorite character. I think him and Brother cause... Muzon, they're, they're like... They're the two cartoon characters of the show. Absolutely, but I think what's... I mean, I think what's really, really great about Omar is that, you know, he is just... He's a full-on sociopath. Mm-hmm. Like, a full-on sociopath. But like Paul said earlier, or maybe Steve did, you know, he lives by his code. Right. And what's interesting is that, in a lot of ways, the way I always thought about Omar was his... Inst- like, like Steve just said, his organization or institution that he's committed to is himself right Mm -hmm. and so his rules are his own rules and he follows them according to his own man got to have a code right? exactly (laughs) and he's and he's but that's i think in a lot of ways you respect him so much and that's why people respect him so much because what he there's that great scene in the courtroom where (laughs) you know the lawyer the lawyer looks at him and goes like so what is your job he's like i rob drug dealers (laughs) and the guy goes so i'm i'm supposed to get take the testimony of somebody who makes their living holding up and killing Mm -hmm. drug dealers and the guy says hey man you know we're the same look at you you do the same thing you know i got the gun you got the briefcase yeah exactly you know what i'm saying that's one of the most classic lines where you really just show it really just shows you you know how Omar understands things so well, and he consciously, on his own terms, made the decisions to do what he's doing. You know, he can really see the game and why the game is the way it is. And he decided not because he had to, not you know, not because the drug dealer above him told him to, or because the cop told him to. But he said, you know what, this is how I'm going to make my living, and mm-hmm. that's how he does it. You know, Omar gets all the best scenes. Oh yeah, when I mean, walking to the also he's store he's a and very He's very homosexual. Oh, yeah. So he's like this crazy murderer drug... He just holds up the hardest, craziest drug dealers in Baltimore. And he's also a huge queer. Yeah. It's great, actually, that he gets killed in the end because that's just that just underlie, underscores kind of the transient nature of the entire game, right? I mean, like, Omar's really, really good at what he does. He's the best stick-up artist out there. But those guys just don't last. Like I mean, they're like they have the shortest life expectancy out of anyone right. out there because everyone wants to kill them. Again, that's so, I mean, yeah, that's, the individual players they change, but as a whole, the game doesn't change right. ever. And that's why it's so that's why the show is so compelling because, like we said earlier, it really does not exploit things. It says, you know, you love this character, you think he's great, and you want to see where he ends up, but we'll kill him for no reason, just randomly. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, just like all you know, a child. Kills Omar. Right. Well, that's that's the wire, just, you know. That's and it's kind such of the a classic. It it's such a classic demonstration of just how arbitrary all this stuff is, mm-hmm. you know. And that's and how we we look for like all these purposes and these meanings and these endpoints, and it's just cyclical, completely cyclical, you know. And that's what that's ultimately what the wire is like about. Like you said, it's just about how people change, people move in and out. We live and we die, but at the end of the day these things, these like weird social constructions that we've built just continue. And it doesn't matter who's there. It doesn't matter if you kill all the drug dealers in Baltimore. There'll be a hundred more people to take their place. Exactly. Um, it doesn't matter if you get, if you, if you have one good cop, um, or you kick out one bad cop, another bad cop is going to come into his place because the organizations are set up in a way. Um, 
I mean, one thing I think is really interesting about The Wire that I've always thought, just in general, is how institutions that rely on power, that, that create power, attract people mm-hmm. that want, want power. power. Exactly. And yes. so there's that great saying, any person who has the ability to be elected president should not be allowed to be president. <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that's a little bit of a joke, but, you know, I think that there's, there's a lot of truth. truth there's to a that. lot of truth to that. The fact that anytime you set up these organizations that create power and give people positions of power for whatever reason, whether because it's efficient or whatnot, um, you're going to attract a certain type of person, the person that wants to get power as opposed to the person that wants to do a good job. Right. And that's one of the biggest problems. I mean, I think... I, I think, think I think there's a good kind of battle with that with Daniels, because Daniels is like the one guy who in the police department. There's a few. I mean, the, we rag on the police department, but there are a few stand-up guys. Daniels is one of them. Yeah. Colvin, you know, you know that he's more concerned with fixing problems than juicing stats. And uh, actually, what I was going to say was there's a great parallel between Herc and Carver, um, and oh, how, yeah. and right. how they they mm-hmm. really split up. I mean, those two were like. They were like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the first season, right? They were just mm-hmm. like the jokesters. And then... Ooh, deep literary reference. Yeah. Oh, I you know, like hey, it. I uh, like it. Up Shakespearean up Shakespearean listeners yes. do we have here? That's, that's AP English. <laughs> yeah, dude. <laughs> right there. Um, but seriously, like, you know, Daniels pulls Carver aside and, and tells him what's up and tells him not to go above him to Burrell. And from that point on, Carver is on... I mean, he's one of those guys you can actually believe in. He is on Daniels' track. Yeah, he is, and, he's on, and he had a great guy. mentor in Colvin, too, mm-hmm. who showed him that you have to get into the street, be in the street, relate to the street to be able to fix the street. I always found it ironic about Daniels that you know, at the beginning of the show when we meet him, he's just like all these other guys. He's self-ambitious. He mm-hmm. wants to move up, and that's And he's got goal. dirt on him, too, right? Yeah. And, you know, by the end of season one and really throughout the rest of the series, he doesn't care about that at all. He wants to do real good police work. And yet, he still ends up moving up and becoming police commissioner. Right. Through no, you know, desire of his own. Well, I mean, it's because he reflected the kind of, like, idealistic youth of, Mm -hmm. of, of, of good. He caught the eye of someone who we all thought wanted... But, but what's great for him is that in the end, when he was confronted with that choice of, quote-unquote, selling right. out, mm-hmm. taking power, but, I mean, compromising his morals, he didn't take it. You know, he, yeah. he bolted. He, he's lucky. He's lucky. He had other options, right? It wasn't right. like, it wasn't the rubber or the rubber. I mean, it was, he just had right. a chance. But, I mean, he's like the one guy, the one police officer. And that's why it was always so kind of funny that he and McNulty butted heads so much, because they both had their own code. They're just Their codes just didn't really... You know, mm-hmm. mesh up very well, and um, it, he was. It, I mean, he wasn't a very likable character, Daniels. But mm-hmm. he, at the same time, you respected him, and you knew he was kind of like one you could count on. Absolutely. Um, and I actually thought that Kima was that way too, but Kima kind of ended up going more down the Maverick uh, McNulty route. Yeah, she, and, McNulty influenced her a little too much. <laughs> which is funny that she's the one that ends up kind of busting him at the end, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has her reasons too, and Kima. I mean, Kima's woman who, had, like, at the very start of the show, you thought she'd have, like, almost a McNulty-like presence, right? She was very, very strong and powerful. And by the end, it's not that she was diminished, but, like, she had just taken on a different... Going to homicide and being, like, the only woman there, a different role that, you know, you hadn't really yeah, seen. Him before. and... Her and Cinder kind of replaced McNulty, in a sense. Because she takes McNulty's place in homicide, and Cinder goes to Judge Phelan at the end, and you, you see that parallel scene mm-hmm. from... The season one episode. Yeah, right. Totally. Where, I know. mean, that's the amazing thing about The Wires. You seriously, over the course of five seasons, 
they will tell a story in such a way that you will actually remember. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's insane. You seriously go like, that reminds me of season one. And, you're, and you know, what other show would you actually pay that much attention to? Mm-hmm. And you would actually get away with that deep of narrative structure and that I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. But in that sense, that's also kind of what hurt the show ratings-wise, because you can't jump in anywhere. You really yeah, have you to have watch to. from the beginning, and so I no, think absolutely. it turned a lot of people off. Oh, it, it totally did. It's a show, but I mean, that's what's, I mean, that's why I think it will actually, in the long term, just be, and it's already ridiculously appreciated, as it, it should is. be, but I really think what people have to really realize is, that, like I said, it's like a book. It's, novel, it's like a yeah. book where it's a it's like a fifty hour film. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, like one, it's, it's pretty much yeah a giant movie that you watch over the course of however many exactly. hours. I mean, and it's a really well done, and it relies on itself. It takes itself very seriously. It doesn't pander to you at yeah. all. It doesn't pander to you, the American television viewer, right. in any way. And uh, and like Steve said, you know, when you first watch it, it's really one of the most boring shows you'll ever watch. Each episode. <laughs> Really, nothing happens, and it won't make sense. And when things either. do happen, you have to know everything. Yeah, to, you have to realize the oh, previous that's why that happened. Seasons, why these things happen. Otherwise, you're just kind of like, "Why? Well, I don't care." You know, like seriously. <laughs> yeah. But when you do know what's going on, just these small things that occur are just they just trigger in you, just like. Yes, I understand. Yeah, you that's why like, you feel smarter watching Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I actually watched only like one episode a day, every single day. Uh, almost without fail, because for me it was almost like it was almost like an installment every single time. And it's like you're learning a little bit more and a little bit more. And it, of course, it was tempting just to crush the whole thing like a week, <laughs> right? But you know, I tried to pace it out, and I think that it, it kind of let things sink in a little bit better. I mean, it, obviously, if you go through it all at once, it's great too. It's going to be probably even yeah. Better, that's almost be- but, a better way to watch it because it gives you time to reflect and you know think about why this stuff is happening. Because it's really it, it, as a viewer, it's a very cerebral show. Right, you have to, you know, think about all the and at, intricacies of, you know, what's at, going on. At the on. end of every episode, when you hear that music, you're just like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> keep going. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a. Uh, I mean, the storytelling is just unbelievable. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really, really, really cool about The Wire is that it, in terms of its storytelling, as effective as it is, it, it again, I really don't think it relies on plot in any way. It mm-hmm. relies on a very sophisticated character deployment, character mm-hmm. development, and interactions between social ideas. Right. And that's why it's so cool, because it's like, it's not over time, really. It's not it's, like they had to tell this specific story. Right. They could have told the story from 20 years ago or 20 years exactly. in the future, and it would be exactly And the it's same so thing. cool, and I think what's really, really cool, I mean, I think they do a really good job of placing each season, because, I mean, there is a linear, you know, temporal, right. linear mm-hmm. element to it. You know, it starts early... And it ends later. But I mean, what's so amazing about it is even in that time frame, just like we were talking about, there's so much reference to earlier things that you are actually experiencing the show in a sense as like a whole thing, which is, which, you know, as a, somebody who studied a lot of literature, that's actually one of the biggest goals of modernist poetry was to try to create a poem, a long poem that requires you to experience it as one item, as opposed Hmm. to moving from a to B to C to D and moving along a linear timescape. And The Wire actually does that because you really do experience the show simultaneously right. because it relies on itself so much. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and the only... You're season- not the only guy with English AP, Paul. Yeah, yeah. Well, now you're still doing it now, so obviously you're, you're rolling with it. 
Um, the only season that, you know, really can kind of be, you know, classified as a separation is season two. And it's somewhat isolated in the sense where you, you kind of, you still get, you know, the, the main drug trade in the game and, you know, all the, the cops and everything. Yeah, the only connection to everything else is the Greeks and the supply. Right. You know, but the whole Stevedore story is way out of left field and you don't see it coming at all. You know, the first time I popped in season two, episode one, I'm like, what are all these white people doing here? It's horror, it's horror. <laughs> but I mean, again, that's why it's such a crazy good show because, I mean, it does that and it gets away with it. Yeah. And I think, I, I'm not sure, you know, it's like, it. what season two really does is it really demonstrates, again, as I've said before, just what it, how easy it is to get from legitimate choices right. in life to illegitimate straight. choices yeah, in life. And how it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's about money. It's about money and the perpetuation of an organization that provides for you. And, you know, he's making hard <laughs> decisions and hundreds of people are depending on him yeah. to do this stuff. And that Very being smart, said, yeah, yeah Sabaka, he, you know, at the end of the day, you know, pure moralists would just say, well, it doesn't matter. He should have just let the organization mm -hmm. die. Right. You know? And, you know, when you look at it from, like, a cost-benefit analysis... The risk he's taking versus the benefit he would con he's conferring by taking that risk might actually be cost justified mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm not I haven't done the math or anything, <laughs> but intuitively I could see like in his mind the calculus could be very real. So there's the risk of me going to jail. There's the risk of me dying. There's the risk of me My doing family. all this stuff and losing all this and all the risk. Yeah, exactly. But at the end of the day, he says, but these whatever, 100, 200, 300 They're people, right. and all their families depend on me right? to get this, get this like thing done or whatever, you know, by paying off officials or contributing political, you know, mm. and he's making that calculus, and in my mind, I could totally see coming out on that side. In that way, Frank Sabatka is really the most selfless character on the show. In a lot of ways, he is. I he mean, is, absolutely. Yeah. But I mean... Again, I think he's he's selfless in the way that he's just placing priorities. He's just prioritizing. Yeah, I mean he's yeah. he's selfless. He's still morally, you know, effed up. Yeah. I, I love the fact that in season two, you know, for me, fucking Zig is just a bit of a nuisance at first. Oh, I wanted yeah. Zig to die so quickly. Yeah, but Zig is like the Jar Jar Binks of the water. Yeah, <laughs> he actually. really is. <laughs> Zig's just like it's just fucking Zig. That's all you need to yeah. hear, right? Fucking Zig. Um, but, you know, at the end, you know, you see Zig and before Frank gets got, like, Frank goes into jail, meets a Zig, and, you know, there's, like, a connection there that you've never seen before, and that's the type of, the inherent family thing that was kind of promoted more at the start of the show and kind of died away after, but, you know, in that sense, it's kind of like Frank knew that all the things that he's been doing um, were for moments that he could spend with Zig. Yeah, Zig, Zig is... Parallel character to me was Naaman. You know, they're, here are guys who, since birth, are have been groomed in preparation to do a certain thing, and yet they are not the type of people oh. who fit into that at all. You know, if, if Zig had been some suburban rich white guy's son, he could have gone off and like been to, gone to college, been a frat boy, and made stupid decisions, and he probably would have been fine. But you know, because he was born into this working class family, his life was fucked since the beginning. No, I mean, he was even in a very good spot. I mean, because generally speaking, Frank was pretty well-to-do, right? I mean, yeah, he was putting money given, on. Yeah, and he was right. given that context. But he was not made to be a working-class guy. Yeah, totally, you know, yeah. Just like Naaman was not made for the corner mm -hmm. yeah. at all. And, you know, Naaman got saved. 
I, d- I didn't realize for a long time that when Zig gets like held up, basically, um, that it was cheese. Yeah, yeah. Did it. Method Man. Cheese like, also, yeah. by the way, is Randy's father. I don't know if you guys what? knew that. Yeah, Cheese. I had no idea. Cheese. His name is his last name is Wagstaff. Oh, right, it is. Huh? And oh, I never even seen this. Why the Wagstaff? Yeah, and they never address that in the show. They just drop that that Randy Wagstaff. So does that mean that Cheese Wagstaff? Does that mean that? Uh, that prop Joe is Randy's like grand uncle. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah it must mm-hmm. be. That's hella crazy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah um, wow. Learning Jesus, new things every day. Jesus is such a dick. I hate Jesus. <laughs> yeah. No, that's one of the that's one of the best like just in just satisfying moments is when Slim just yeah, shoots it's, just, it's in the so head. great. Yeah. And then the other guy's like, "Why would you do that for?" We just like, <laughs> you just gave him half a million dollars. Like, we'll find a way, man. Yeah. So, Method Man <laughs> and Dominic West are really the only actors that. I had recognized from other things before. Which one's Dominic West? McNulty. He's McNulty. Oh, yeah. Um, so I think... Do you know, recognize Herc from Entourage? Oh, uh, no. I didn't make that okay. connection at first. Okay, I didn't... Yeah. I was like, I, I... You know, I think I probably... He's probably one of those that guys, you know. I think he's I've been in something else in a very before. similar role to actually. actually. Um, go on. But yeah, yeah I think that's a real important thing about the show is when you see these characters, you take them for who they are on the mm-hmm. show and you don't have any other... You know, preconceived notions of you know. Let's say they cast Tom Cruise as McNulty, it would have right. been completely fucked up. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I actually saw Levy um, at a Bart station. Really? Yeah, and I was like, "Holy shit, it's Levy!" And then, and then even weirder, I saw him on ABC Family last week. <laughs> yeah, it's weird when you see them <laughs> in different roles now. Like Idris Elba is blowing up. He's yeah. his career. He's okay, one funny thing about The Wire cast is that. Two of them made it onto the office after the <laughs> which is just weird. I mean, that's just weird. Yeah. Like pretty substantial roles. Yeah, and they were great. But it's just funny because you get Ibris, whatever Idris Elba. He's, yeah. he's going to be Heimdall in Thor. He's going to play a Norse god. You really, know, he is. You know that he's, he's like buddies British. with Puff Daddy. Is he really? And he has a music career. He's British, isn't he? He's, he's British. And he's yeah. British. Yeah. And then Holly. Uh, Beatty, yeah. Yeah, Amy Ryan, who was, was nominated for an Oscar for Gone Baby Gone. Oh, really? Yeah, she's great in that movie, by the I way, if you haven't it. seen that. BD was solid in uh, in The Wire. I they really like I'm they, very attracted to her, actually. Yeah. They, needed, they actually needed someone like her because she actually is like a bit of a calming influence. Totally. Like, everyone, Kima's life's a mess, McNulty's life's a mess, Bunk's, I mean, he's got it under control, but he's kind of, you know, We funny. don't see his he's life a drunk, as much. But, right, yeah. but uh, BD's like the one who's actually like, Relatively straight, you know. She's she's got her stuff. She's got problems, but she she knows who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. I mean, I think I I don't know if we're trying to finish up now, but I think the biggest takeaway that you could have from this, because this is probably the most confusing podcast you've ever listened to. <laughs> if you haven't is, watched an episode, is, of this, this show, is yeah. how excited people get about this show. You know, you know, you know us. You know who we are. We're like regular dudes. And this is how excited we get about this show. And we can and, talk for hours. I, more. We, this could have this could have been a three hour, yeah, or a five hour. I don't podcast. think we're going to have time for a Mary Buff kill this week, guys. So. Right, <laughs> right. But uh, you know, that being said, I, I just got to say that that's this is like sincere excitement, sincere thinking that we've probably been doing on a very regular basis <laughs> since the wires occurred. And the reason you do that is because seriously, every event you watch on television, every news story you hear about this or that, in a lot. I would say at least half the time, it will trigger. Wire. It'll trigger mm-hmm. something in my mind that goes like, "Oh well, the you know," and it just gives you this very. It was it was really hard for me to watch quote unquote normal television after this. Right. Like yeah. 
when I I was trying to watch 24 as I was watching this, it's also and I was like, this is the dumbest show ever. And I've loved 24 <laughs> forever. It's like, I can't take this show seriously anymore. Like, The yeah. Wire just completely blows it out of the water. No, absolutely. And, um, and now, at, yeah. At the end of the day, The Wire really is just about, like, people struggling. Yeah. Yeah. That's all it really is. It's not, a, you know, all this other stuff we're talking about, it's all there, and it's all great. But at the end of the day, what makes it such a powerful show is the emotional connection. And the emotional connection is just... You know, people try. There are a few of the characters trying to do something good mm-hmm. and struggling and, and, to yeah. do it, and that's it. You and know? I, I think it's even the sense that they pick a city like Baltimore <coughs> and not a city like New York. Absolutely. I mean, New York would kind of glorify that, right? Right, right. Baltimore is just you know, it's it's an yeah. urban city with a lot of problems, but it's that not people don't really even think about right. right? And yeah. they they arbitrarily pick a part of Baltimore that's bad, right. but like it's not even like the worst part of the country. And, that's, and that's why the shows is so powerful because it. It makes you look at the things that we don't nat- naturally yeah. look at. And on a personal satisfaction standpoint, I don't know about you guys, but for me, and you know, I haven't really done literary analysis at all <laughs> since high school. And even then, I hated it. But this is the first time where I actually enjoyed <laughs> thinking about, you know, what does this mean? What was the director or the mm-hmm. writer trying to say oh, here? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And you know, before this, I had no desire to do that ever <laughs> at all. But yeah, the, for this, the Wire has really opened me up to that now. Totally. Definitely. I think we should do a Mary Bofko, People in the Wire. Okay. What do you say? Uh, I think Let's we've do done it. that before, right? Have you done we that? Kinda we kind of did. Episodes, can, we previous episodes, I think we, we've done like what do we do? Kimo Ronda and uh, Beatty. I think I remember doing that one. Those are the oh three. yeah, that's pretty much it, huh? Yeah, unless you want to do like Brianna, Snoop, and oh, God. Ube's mom. I mean, oh, I don't know yeah. else oh, we should do that. We should do drug dealers. Yeah. yeah. On the drug dealer side. Well, is there anyone else? I'm trying to think of We could do else. McNulty. I mean, we could do guys, right? We could do McNulty. <laughs> no, we should do McNulty's the... McNulty's such a whore. I mean, <laughs> I mean manslaughter. Actually, the cutest girl in the whole show that I thought was uh, the, like, teacher in the uh, the problem child class with Colvin. She's like this black girl. Oh, yeah, she was hot. You know who I thought was really hot? <laughs> Josh, give me the weird slicker. Norice Campbell, the the uh, council president. Oh, she was hot. She was hot. Was oh, like, yeah, she's oh, hot. Oh, damn. Yeah. Definitely. It was a little distracting because, you know, Actually, everyone else even, in the show is like not Even D'Agostino is pretty good looking. Yeah, she was pretty hot. She's, uh, she's a good looking girl. I liked Carcetti's wife. She was cute, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's the babe, definitely. Um, so are we going to do that or what do you, what do you think? No, I think, I think this is, this whole thing is going to cut out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last two minutes I think are just going to have to be edited. Editing? What is that? <laughs> um, um, is there anything else you're going to talk final about? Final thoughts. You already heard mine. Final this, thoughts is watch the show as soon as you can if you have not. And if you have not, I can't imagine you getting to this point in the podcast without shooting yourself <laughs> in the head. But go out, get the wire, download it. You know, buy it, do whatever you have to do, watch it as soon as you can. It really will change your life and the way you look at everything. The final thoughts for me is that this has opened up, you know, so much, so many different things to me that really weren't very interesting before are suddenly like really interesting to me now. So, for example, I I read The Corner, which is like a book by David Simon, um, which is ba- basically just the drug David Simon's one of the writers. One of the writers, mm-hmm. yeah. And that doesn't even bring in the cops or, you know, the schools or anything like that. It almost exclusively focuses on the drug trade and, like, drug fiends, drug dealers and that relationship. Um, and and then also at the same time, it makes you look at almost every everything that I see now, like, in the news, from, like, the police, from the schools. All of it is, like, honestly, I'm just kind of skeptical of everything now. And I think it's good, though. I think it really... 
it, it makes you kind of evaluate yeah. things instead of taking them at face value. And, you know, like, like Steve and Josh have both said, you know, there's a reason why we're so excited about this. And I think that if you watch it, make sure you give it some time, be patient with it, but you'll really, really enjoy it um, yeah. as much as anything you've ever Anytime seen. Anytime the police have any kind of press conference now i just can't take it seriously. <laughs> you know, that's, it's like look at all these guns like, we took off the streets yeah. and all these drugs um and we're also all i think we're also all very lucky to be in an environment where you know we don't have to worry about those kinds yeah of we things. can watch it from an observer's point of view we don't have to be living this and we're very fortunate for that yep, yep. but uh anyway yeah thanks for listening and we'll be back to our regular schedule next week i think yeah, so. Sounds good. Yeah, peace and love from New Th- York City. Thanks for having a uh, big hand to Joshua yeah, Kim for, for joining us. Josh. We definitely uh, needed his insight. Anytime you carry. would like to Skype in to an episode, Absolutely. we would welcome You're it. always welcome. Sounds good. And I'm so happy you guys are finally leaving my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I've been here for like 10 days. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's been the best. You guys should move here. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> We're keeping that in. We're keeping that in. I hope that picked up. She.